Back in the day, I used to be a youth pastor, and I would do these lock-ins, like once a year, you guys know what a lock-in is, right? Stay up all night, play dodgeball, play hide-and-go-seek in the dark, drink Mountain Dew, all that stuff, and, and usually when I did a lock-in, uh, it, was, it was about 24 hours of no sleep, and I never longed for rest the way I did when I was on the, in the last leg of a lock-in. And like that last leg was really hard because I was really tired and I was making teenagers clean up. Like that was rough. So, and then there's this one time um, I finished a lock-in and I came home and the first thing Jennifer said to me was, Morgan, I think I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I did not enter the rest that time. So have you ever longed for rest like that? Have you ever longed for rest where, where you were just so weary, whether, whether it was physical tiredness or mental or emotional or whatever, where you just, the only thing you could think about was entering into some sort of rest? Hebrews 4 uh, is, is dealing with that as we, as we move along to Hebrews 4 today. The author wants us to think about rest and a specific kind of rest. But before we get to that, we need to do some background because, you know, through Hebrews, we're, we're dealing with a lot of Old Testament. And, and today is probably even more Old Testament than, than even the author of Hebrews wants us to deal with. And so, so we're going to have to go back to uh, the Israelites after they have come out of Egypt in the Exodus. And they're in the wilderness. We all kind of are familiar with this story, right? Where they're wandering around in the wilderness. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It was brutal work. You know, at least, at least for the last part of it, you know, they had to make the bricks without the straw. They didn't get days off. Every day was the same. Every day was a work day and probably a, a very long, brutal work day. But Moses leads them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, right? They're, they're going through, uh, through the wilderness towards Canaan, which is the promised land. And God wants to give them rest. If we look at Deuteronomy 12.10, uh, we see this very clearly. God says, But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live in safety. Now, the, the journey from the Red Sea to Canaan is supposed to take like two weeks on foot. Okay, so why did it take them 40 years? The men stopped. I mean, the men failed to stop and ask for directions, right? We know that's probably what happened. No, they, they wandered for 40 years because of unbelief. They failed to believe. They failed to trust God. And this is why the author of Hebrews is going gonna to borrow heavy, heavily from Psalm 95 in this passage. If you look at your Bible where, it, where, it, um, where you read Hebrews 4, there's these quotations, right? And they're all from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is probably David saying, like, here's why Israel didn't enter the promised land. Okay, so look at Psalm 95, 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me. Don't be trying, God. They, th though they had seen what I did. So when we read about Meribah and Massah, we're supposed to think back to Exodus chapter 17. What happened there? Well, a lot of quarreling and testing. That's what 
the names Meribah and Masa mean. It means quarreling and testing in Hebrew. And they named that place where this thing happened quarreling and testing. You know, it's kind of like how this area is called West Chase. Imagine if it was named quarreling. So, so they're in this wilderness and they're complaining because they're thirsty and they don't have any water to drink. It's hot, it's dry, it's a desert. God, where's our water? We would, we'd rather go back to Egypt and be slaves in Egypt because at least there we had water. And this is right on the heels of chapter 16 where they said the same thing about food. God, we, we miss the food of Egypt. I know we were slaves there. I know that they were beating us and making us work every day, but at least we had food. This is kind of their attitude. They didn't trust God to provide for them. And this is why it says that they put the Lord God to the test. That's a way of saying they did not trust him. Continually, lack, they lacked trust in him. So, yeah, they were in the wilderness. I get it. Let's, maybe we give them a little break. It's hot, it's dry, maybe a little scary. But they're in the wilderness with God. He is with them. He promised to be with them. He promised to lead them to the promised land. And think about this too. Think about what they had seen in Egypt. Think about the 10 plagues, all of them miraculous plagues. Think about parting the Red Sea. I mean, you're walking on dry land through the Red Sea. You can see the fish on either side, right? You, you see that. You see God doing that, and, and then you still can't trust him to provide for you. And then he continues to provide for you, and you still can't trust him. And so what's the deal? They did not believe. They didn't believe God would do what he said he was going to do, even though clearly he always does what he says he's going to do. And so there's a warning for us here. As we enter into Hebrews 4, there is a warning. Do not harden your hearts like the Israelites did. Do not fail to enter God's rest. And what we'll see first is that we can only enter God's rest by faith. So let's read uh, just the first two verses for now of Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So Israel knew the good news of God. They didn't have Jesus. They didn't know it in that way, and so we have sort of an advantage over them in that way, but, but they knew the good news, like we've already talked about. They've seen the miraculous works of God. They've seen his faithfulness in action, and yet it didn't do them any good because they just heard it. They didn't believe it in faith. Faith is, is hearing the word of God and then living according to it, acting on it. Okay, that's why James is always talking about, you know, faith without works is dead. It's not enough to just intellectually assent to it. Some people can hear the gospel preached for years. They can sit in the same chair or the same pew in church for years, hear the same gospel message, and it never, they never believe it. Benjamin Franklin used to go watch the great English preacher George Whitfield all the time. Like, Whitfield would come to America and do these preaching tours, and Ben Franklin would go and listen to him. And he said he liked to listen to him because even though he didn't believe it, he liked hearing someone who clearly did believe it. So, as far as we know, Benjamin Franklin died an agnostic. 
he heard the gospel, but he did not believe it. And why, I mean, is there anyone smarter than Benjamin Franklin? Like, it wasn't about not understanding it intellectually. It was about, probably, he did not want to believe. So we are in a wilderness right now of some, of some strange kind. We have a pandemic that we don't know when it's going to end. We're, we're not sure what, what the economy is going to do. I mean, the long-term effects of that are a little scary. You know, we're, right now we're not sure what's going on with kids in school. I mean, are, are we going to be okay? We, we're tempted here, I think, to, to doubt God's provision in this wilderness, especially if you're worried about your employment we are tempted to doubt that God will provide. But can we look at God's record of faithfulness and, and then say, okay, he's always provided before, he's always been faithful, I will trust him moving forward. I mean, Jesus says, you don't have to worry about your food, you don't have to worry about your clothing because, look, I know you need those things. And you're more important than the, the birds and the flowers and all that. Do you believe that that's true? Will you, will you act on that? Will you live as though God knows what you need and will provide for you? Some feel like it's easier to live just based on sight, just based on what we see. Just, it's kind of like how Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. It was familiar. They, they could see their provision rather than having to trust God in the wilderness. And this is why I think many people hear the gospel and walk away. They, maybe they prefer to handle their own salvation through good works. Maybe they, they think, at least if I, if I have a system that I can work to earn my own salvation, at least then I'm in control. At least then I get credit. At least then my hard work pays off. We like to work. I, uh, I once had someone come to my door to, you know, invite me into their religion. I won't, I won't name names, but I shared the gospel with this person. I said, basically, you know, salvation is a free gift that Jesus just gives us. We don't have to earn it. You know what she said? She said, well, that just sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? And I, and I said, yeah, it is too good to be true, but it's true. And why did she think that? I think probably because so many of us, we, we can't get past this idea that we, in life we only get what we work for. Or that we, you know, we only get what we earn. Especially in religion. But look, you know what that's like? I don't know if you're familiar with Greek mythology, but there's this myth about Sisyphus who, who was doomed to push a boulder uphill every single day for eternity and then have the boulder fall back down. And then the next day you have to do it again. That's what trying to do religion is like. It is an endless toil and you will never have rest from it. Ever. And it will lead you to death. But the good news is that Jesus has done all of the work of salvation and our role is to rest in what he has done. That is the good news. We, we rest in Jesus and what he has done. And we're going to learn more about what that rest looks like. We're going to read this, this next really big chunk of this passage and we're going to see that God's rest 
is far better than we can imagine. So let's read uh, 3 through 10 together. Uh, Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, Since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David. That's that's the Psalm 95 passage. As in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. All right. Whew. I, I still don't really know what this means, but I'm going to try. So, um, <clears throat> Normally, we think about rest as resting from weariness, right? Like, like at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about the lock-in. All I wanted to do was rest from that. So we think about sitting down, kicking back, you know, sleeping or, or watching a ball game or whatever we like to do to rest. But God's rest is quite different from that. And we know that because he's talking about the seventh day of creation. When God, on the seventh day, was, was creating, it says that he rested from his creation. So what does that mean? Does that mean God was tired? Like, he was tired from making all these galaxies and universes and everything. I guess there's only one universe. Galaxies. Solar systems. That's the other word I'm looking for. He's tired from that? No. This was a rest of completion. God stopping, ceasing, and you know, proverbially sitting down on the seventh day of creation was, was him signifying my work of creating the heavens and the earth is done. It's complete. He's not tired. He is finished. And so we are invited to enter into a rest that is more like a rest of completion than a rest from weariness, all right? So it's not a temporary rest from labor. It's a permanent rest in relationship with God. We, we see more about this because, because he brings up Joshua, right, in verse 8. You know, Joshua was the guy who took over from Moses. He led the second generation of Israelites into the promised land. They, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. So Joshua, you go read about him and he's actually a really godly man. He's very faithful. You know, he's one of the spies that spied out Canaan and was like, look, we can do this. Let's, let's go. We got God on our side. There are few who are more faithful than Joshua. And yet, the author here says, there's a better Joshua and a better rest. Do you guys know that Jesus is the name Joshua in Hebrew? Like, they're, Jesus and Joshua are the same name in Hebrew. They're both Yeshua. And that, that means Yahweh saves. It's just that Jesus is, is a translation of the Greek rather than the Hebrew. So Jesus is the better Joshua. He's Joshua times a billion. And he's leading us not just to a physical promised land, but to a spiritual promised land, a spiritual rest. Look at Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30. You guys know this verse. This is... This is a great 
fantastic, wonderful, delightful verse where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can find rest for your soul right now. There, there is a promised land that, that, that is here for us right now in relationship with Jesus. And there's an ultimate promised land to come later on too. That's, that's eternity in the new heavens and new earth. But for right now, we get to enjoy a rest from working for our salvation because Jesus has completed the work of salvation. If you think to Jesus on the cross, in, in John 19, the last thing Jesus says before he dies, what is it? Anybody know? Call it out. It is finished. Amen. What is finished? The work of salvation is finished. So just as God the Father completes his work of creation on, the day, on day seven, Jesus, God the Son, completes the work of salvation on the cross. It is finished. The work that is needed to save us is all done. And anything that we try to add to it is completely unnecessary because Jesus has done it all. So we are invited to come by faith and find rest in him, trusting that he has done everything for us. What, what does that look like practically? Well, look, we can rest from viewing God's commands as rules that we have to obey for him to love us. We, we can rest from feeling like we have to plead our case before God. We can rest from, from feeling like we need to justify our value to God. Oh, he knows we're valuable <laughs> better than we do. We don't have to justify that. We, we rest from like this, this, ever had this gnawing sense inside you that you're just not quite good enough? We rest from that. We rest from having to live by sight. And when I, when I say that, what I mean is we rest from having to live as though everything depends on me and what I contribute and what I do. That's exhausting. Jesus offers us rest from all of that. He invites us to come. He says, come, depend on me. You'll find that my, my burden is light. The last thing for this point is that there is really some urgency to this. There's some urgency to enter this rest. He says this, this really strange thing in, in like verse 7 where he's talking about, is it today? Is it still today? Basically what he's saying is, if, if today is still today, then today is when you should enter God's rest. Today is when God's rest is available. As long as there's a today, God's rest is available to us. When should you find your rest in God? Now. Don't wait till you're in college. Don't wait till you have kids. Don't wait till you have more time. Don't wait till you're retired. No. Now. Find your rest in God now. It is urgent. God will deal with us sooner rather than later, if not. Let's turn our attention to the last few verses. These are, these are verses that should be well known to all of us about God's word. He says in verses 11 through 13, 
Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Remember, we're talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this last point here is that we enjoy God's rest by working at resting. All right, that doesn't make any sense. So let me, let me explain a little bit. So as, as we learn to, to live a life of resting in God, um, we're always going to be tempted to fall back into patterns of self-justification, self-righteousness, living by sight and not by faith, pride. You know, we're always going to want to go back to our proverbial Egypt. We're always going to want to go back to where, where things are more in our control and, and where we are, we are more, you know, seeing the fruits of our own labor and, and feeling like we're depending on ourselves. We're always going to want to go back to that. You know, like, there, there are definitely days when I don't want to trust God to, you know, to have the plan for me. In other words, like, I, I want my own plans to come to fruition because, look, my own plans are almost always going to involve some sort of really fast, you know, gratification for me. <laughs> Who doesn't like that, right? Who doesn't like instant gratification? God's plans, sometimes they feel like they take forever to... to play out. Sometimes it takes forever to understand what God is doing, and we have to trust him by faith when we live that way. So it's going to be a battle for our whole lives un until that final day when our life here is done and we enter that final Sabbath rest. This will be a battle. We will battle sin, and we will battle, you know, the temptation to fall out of resting in God and, and go back into those patterns of trying to do everything ourselves. So we have to work at resting. <laughs> we have to learn how to do this. And there's, I think there's really two ways the word shows us how to do that, and, and it's through Sabbath and through the word. So verse 9 says that there is a, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And I just want to highlight this because it, it does bring up this, this idea of Sabbath. You know, Israel was commanded to, uh, to, to work one day, a or to, sorry, rest one day a week, rest from all of their normal work, and this was for people, this was for, like, slaves, this was for um, animals, this was even for the land. Everything was supposed to rest, just like Chick-fil-A. So, Sabbath, there, there was even a Sabbath year. One out of every seven years was a Sabbath year where you, where you specially observed uh, rest for the land and for animals. And then there was every 50 years a year of Jubilee. So in the year of Jubilee, not only did you practice an extra year of Sabbath rest, but all land was restored to its prior owners and all debts were canceled. Like that's a cancel culture that I can get behind. So, this was, but this was never just about physical rest, right? That was a huge part of it. Physical rest, I mean, look, 
Say what you want about Chick-fil-A, but like their business is booming. So maybe there's some wisdom there, but it's beyond that. It's supposed to remind us of our need for spiritual rest. So it's easy to lose sight of this. It's easy to think about Sabbath as just like tradition, right? So you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you know, the tradition song, and you watch them do all their little Sabbath traditions in that movie. Like, it's just tradition. I, I don't even know if they know why they're doing it. It's just something we do. But no, that's not what Sabbath is. Sabbath is meant to constantly remind us of our need to find our rest in God. So, does Sabbath still apply to us? This is a debate that people have because, just to be frank, this, this is the only of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated directly in the New Testament. So people debate, should we observe Sabbath? Do we have to observe the Sabbath? And I think it's really strange because it's like we don't want to observe the one, sab- or the one command that tells us to rest. Like all the other ones we're fine with, but the one that says, hey, you've got to rest. No, no, we don't want to do that. We don't like resting. We like working. All right, so I'm, I'm going to say some things, and I'm going to try to be, you know, gentle. But I want to ask you, do you rest? Do you have a day? Can you, can you shut it off for a day? Can you unplug, figuratively and literally, for a day? Can, can you take, think about it this way. Can you take a day and say, all right, God, today it's about your schedule, not, not mine. Today I'm not going to control my schedule. You know, we, I want to say this very carefully because we are in a very weird time. <laughs> The pandemic has completely like thrown this off. I mean, there, there is certainly a sense in which it is not wise for us to, for, for everybody to gather as a church right now. And so there's a lot of people that, that for you right now, you, you need to not be here for health reasons, for, for various other reasons. I, I completely get that. And, and I don't think that anybody, especially God, is judging anybody for that. Okay, so, so God is gracious towards us when it comes to observing Sabbath. But normally, if we ever get back to some sort of normalcy, we are to prioritize being together in worship on the Sabbath. We, we are to prioritize being here, not, not watching on TV, being here on a Sunday morning. We, we do not, as a church, we should not view this time as something we do when it fits into our schedule. This is about living on God's schedule. So, so maybe we push back, all right? Well, but we don't have to be here every Sunday because if we start saying that, now we're legalists. Right, of course. God, God is gracious. And, and this is not about saying you have to be here every time the doors are open because that is damaging. And, and I think, obviously, there, there are plenty of exceptions that if we need to miss, we can miss, and God is gracious. But... Are we going to swing it to the opposite side of the, of the pendulum and say, God doesn't really care? <laughs> I don't think we're going to do that either. I think God cares. Because look, Jesus says, the Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath is made for us. The Sabbath is made for human beings. 
to, to remember how to enjoy rest with God. So I'll just say it this way. God wants us here as, as much as we can be here because he wants us to find rest for our souls. And this is where we find it. We don't find it in the world. We don't find it in, in sports. We, we don't find it on vacation, really. We find it here. So maybe with Sabbath, you know, the concern is I don't have enough time in my week. I don't, I've got to find a time to, to do homework or to, to finish up some, some emails or whatever it is. Put, put God to the test with this. Don't, don't test God by hardening your hearts. Put God to the test with, with this and, and see if you, will, if you will observe Sabbath, see if he will not be faithful. The last thing I'll say about this is we work at resting by being vulnerable to the word. It says the word is living and active, that, that God is alive, and so he is absolutely working and giving life through his word, and the word always does whatever God wants it to do. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purposes for which I sent it. What else in the universe always does whatever it's supposed to do? Nothing else. Even the sun will probably burn out one day. But God's word always does whatever it's supposed to do, whatever God wants it to do. And so it has such power. And if it has that kind of absolute power, then we are safe to make ourselves vulnerable before it. What do I mean by that? Well, look, it says, it says that the word is sharper than any double-edged sword. So to me, when I think of something sharper than a double-edged sword, I start thinking about like a scalpel. Okay, so, so the word is like a scalpel in the hands of the Holy Spirit. The word cuts deep, not, not in a bad way, but God is, is constantly using his word to do a, a type of soul surgery or heart surgery on us where he is looking deeper and deeper into our hearts, seeing if there, there are parts where we are still sick, where we are still falling back into self-righteousness, where we are still failing to rest in Jesus. So what I would ask is, can we come before God and say Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 to him? Look at what this says. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Wow, can, can we open ourselves up to God that much? Where we say, just, just God, look at me. Look at it all. Look at my whole heart. Look at my, look at my soul. Look at my life. Tell me, tell me where I'm off. Can we do that? Can we trust God enough to go before him that way? Because I, I think, you know, when we want to hide from him, it's kind of like we're, we're saying, well, I'm just going to take my chances with, with slavery in Egypt, whatever that looks like for you. Some of, the, some of the freest, least anxious people I've ever met are people who they've been able to come clean to God about all their sin, whatever it is, and they don't have to hide, and they know it. And they know they can be vulnerable before God. Why? Because we can trust Him. And that's, I could probably have just said one thing today. You can trust God. 
with everything. You can rest in him because that's where he wants to lead us, to rest with him. Let's pray.